Hello, and welcome to Oddments, the audio program from the College of Curiosity. Now here's your host, Jeff Wag. Hello, Jeff Wag here. This episode is a little different and a little longer. After the usual interesting topic from Jerris, some puzzle stuff, and another audio illusion, we'll have an essay about, well, the death of light, in a way. It makes this episode a bit longer, but we think it's worth it, and we hope you do too. As for now, let's hear from Jarris, who I hear has been sharpening his harpoon. Jarris? I want to talk about spermaceti. Mostly because I have the maturity of a ten-year-old, and it makes me giggle to say spermaceti. If any of you are whalers, you know all about spermaceti. It's a wax-like substance that you get from whales, in the greatest quantities, from sperm whales. Before we can really get into spermaceti, and whales, and sinking ships, we have to get some basic cetacean physiology down. This is the part where we find out that biologists are also 10 years old. On the forward part of a whale's head is a bulbous fatty area that helps with echolocation. This is technically referred to as the melon. It is actually part of the whole nasal structure. Inside the melon is the junk. That's the technical term for a fatty substance that helps to focus sounds going out and coming back to the whale as part of its sonar, which is not, I know, exactly the same as echolocation. In some whales, there is another organ right next to the junk that is called the spermaceti organ. The spermaceti organ is filled with a kind of semi-liquid wax. In the sperm whale, the spermaceti organ is what makes up the whole front of the face, that big cliff-like nose. So, let's review. If you're a sperm whale, your melon is filled with junk. That's right next to your spermaceti. The whole thing is in your nose. Really, a better term would be snotaceti. But it's too late to change now. And people are trying to kill you to get the snot out of your nose. So what use is spermaceti to people? Well, not much these days, considering how hard it is to get and that we can make similar substances without chasing animals through the oceans. But 150 years ago, spermaceti was the miracle substance of the age. It is hard and waxy and has a very narrow liquid range. It melts at 50 degrees Celsius, that's 122 degrees American, and congeals at 45 degrees Celsius, 113 degrees American. That makes it an almost perfect candle, solid above most normal temperatures and then liquid after that. Crystallized spermaceti is hard and oily, but without any taste or smell. It was used in cosmetics, medical ointments, and pharmaceuticals. So what use is spermaceti if you are a sperm whale? That's the mystery. It might be used for buoyancy control, or extra special echolocation, or if you're an albino sperm whale being chased by a crazy one-legged sea captain, it can make it possible to ram your face against a sailing ship and sink it. In people, this is similar to headbutting as typified in the traditional Scottish martial arts. Have you got any grease? So, story time. It's 1821, and the good ship Essex is out on the high seas, minding their own business, killing sperm whales. They had already harpooned a couple of whales when they noticed a big bull whale floating there and watching the ship. After a while, it dived out of sight. All of a sudden, it came charging out of the depths and smashed face-first into the port side of the ship. The Essex was unhappy, but still afloat. The whale then swam a half kilometer away and did the I'm an angry whale dance before swimming in front of the ship, reversing direction, and smashing headfirst into the bows. The Essex started sinking and capsized within 10 minutes. The crew took to the lifeboats. After more than 90 days and a little bit of cannibalism, they were rescued. There was some speculation as a result of this encounter that whales might not like being hunted and killed. 
There were a couple of other incidents that were similar. Each time, the whale battered a much larger sailing ship with its melon. But is this why sperm whales have a spermaceti organ, or were these just isolated attacks by rogue whales backed by a loose association of like-minded cetacean terrorists? Dr. David Carrier, a biologist at the University of Utah who specializes in biomechanics and vertebrate evolution, decided to test the hypothesis that the spermaceti organ is made for battle. He and his team came at the problem in a couple of different ways. First, they looked at whether the spermaceti organ and the junk would together serve as a good shock absorber for headbutting. They assumed that the natural target for the headbutting of male sperm whales is other male sperm whales, and built some male-on-male -male sperm models. Yeah, I'm still 10 years old. They took acceleration of the attacker and the target into account, and the dampening constants of different springs and tissues, and came up with the answer, yes. It is possible for the spermaceti organ to protect the attacker from significant damage while inflicting damage on the target. Second, they took a look at sexual dimorphism the difference in external appearance between females and males of the same species. Carrier et al. noted that the natural weapons of males, teeth, claws, tusks, pickup trucks, tend to be the largest relative to body size in animals with the greatest level of sexual dimorphism. The implication is that if sperm whales use their melons for battle with other males, then the melons should be outsized in males relative to their body size compared to females. To provide some frame of reference, the team looked at a variety of whales with different levels of sexual dimorphism and compared their melon sizes, highlighting the ones in which headbutting between males had been observed. The result is that the sperm whale's melon size is consistent with using it as a battering ram to fight among bull whales. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Sperm whales have an absolutely huge spermaceti organ that is filled with a kind of wax that people can use for stuff. It's not unlikely that the sperm whales use their organ to help them headbutt other males and the occasional ship. Finally, I don't want to be a sperm whale because guys would always be hitting me with their junk. Thank you, Jarris. I promise to keep my junk to myself. By the way, Jarris wasn't using the term junk randomly. That is the actual name for the oil and tissue in the whale's nasal cavity. There's another word you might be familiar with that involves whales, and that is the fail whale. This is the image Twitter puts up when their service fails. It turns out that that's completely appropriate, because if you cut the head off a whale, you'll encounter a very tough thread known by whalers as the Twitter. Last time we asked you to solve the following puzzle. What is black when you buy it, red when you use it, and gray when you're finished with it? The answer is charcoal at least if you're using it correctly. The puzzle for this time involves a natural feature of the Earth. You know about mountains and rivers, plains, oceans, and volcanoes. But there's one natural feature on this planet that's found on no other planet that we know of. And on Earth, there is exactly one. It was first mapped in the early 1800s, and even today, it remains one of the most mysterious places on Earth. If you think you know the answer, contact us at collegeofcuriosity.com or find us on Facebook. We have another audio illusion for you. Have a listen and think about the images your mind goes to.
The sound is called falling bells, and it certainly sounds as if the tones are falling, perhaps in their long descent to the bottom of the ocean. In fact, they're actually rising in pitch. Don't believe me? Here's the clip again, but with the end and beginning swapped. You'll hear the break between them. brains have been programmed to associate certain sounds with certain images. In this case, the low tones are being faded out, and the high tones are being increased. You've learned that high-pitched sounds travel farther, so when the bass goes, it adds to the effect of a falling object. The volume is also changing, and the channels swap sides to give the impression of spiraling. So while a falling object may sound similar to this, the pitch of the tones is actually rising. We'll have another audio illusion next time. Light catchers. The staircase to the telescope is wide at the bottom and narrow at the top. It's not an illusion of perspective. With each step up, as the voices and stomping feet and squeaking sneakers from above grow louder, the walls close in a little tighter, and the tiny uppermost steps curve sharply to the right. They end abruptly at a stout iron door, latched shut like a bank vault. Here at Northwestern University's Dearborn Observatory, a rookie stargazer might expect to find a sanctuary, as calm as the warm spring air, and as solemn as the task at hand. As she heaves against the door, she might picture Galileo alone in a field with a pile of primitive telescopes, twisting lenses here and there, hoping to coax a little luster out of the abyss. The old hinge moans as the door swings open. There is nothing serene about this place. The round room can barely contain the crowd's energy. There's red light everywhere. Dozens of people of every age are waiting in line for a chance to glimpse a cluster of stars nearly 20,000 light-years away. Northwestern physics students with name tags around their necks work the telescope and the room, flitting from computer to layperson and back again, answering questions and offering astronomical factoids. A child is lifted up for a better look. A wrinkled man in a baseball cap points toward the opening and the domed roof and asks, Which star is that? A student races to the computer and returns quickly with the answer. It's Arcturus, the third brightest star in the sky. A small group of physics students crowds around the two monitors at the computer that controls the telescope. One monitor is awash in simple green-on-black text, and the other displays a slick, animated, interactive map of the night sky. The students are trying to decide where to aim the telescope next. They could go east over Lake Michigan, where light pollution is low and no tall buildings clutter up the horizon, but maybe they'd prefer a challenge tonight. They deliberate loudly. We're doing double-double. No. I'm feeling ambitious. Aw, oh, there's no way we'll get it. Do it. They egg each other on, and the telescope moves. A little target on the computer screen hovers above the elusive coordinates, like a bumblebee casing a flower. The roof moves, too, until the open hatch faces the telescope. The students trail the scope with a tall, freestanding ladder on wheels, while the group at the computer tries to get the angle just right. Not working! Keep going, it's close! How close am I? You're right on it! Almost! Go a little farther south! Epsilon Lyrae, known affectionately to astronomers as the Double-Double, is a binary star system. It works like this. 
Two stars are so massive and so close together that they fall into orbit around each other, and two other massive stars, also orbiting each other, are so close to the first two that each pair ends up orbiting the other pair. Done tinkering now, the students observe excitedly that there are no buildings in this direction, no mid-rises or church spires to spoil the view. A dark-haired student in a brown ringer tee hurries up the ladder. The crowd falls silent as he leans into the eyepiece. Oh my god, he says. It's there. Light is familiar and indispensable. It heats our planet, darkens our skin, helps our plants grow big and strong. It shows us things we want to see and things we don't want to see. It comes in every color of the rainbow. Indeed, its properties determine every color of the rainbow, not to mention all the infrared and ultraviolet variations our eyes can't detect, and it's nearly impossible to avoid. But light is also tough to pin down. It's a particle, it's a wave, it's frenetic, it moves. Moves is an understatement. It races through space at 670 million miles per hour, and it never gets old. Literally, it does not age, and the easiest way to prevent it from traveling at 670 million miles per hour, fast enough to circle the Earth's equator about seven and a half times per second, is to find and annihilate it. Slam it into something that will absorb and convert its energy into something else. This is the chief task of a telescope. A refracting telescope, like the one at Northwestern, uses two lenses to capture and focus the impossibly tiny, completely massless, recklessly speedy constituents of light, photons. The objective lens, the big one at the telescope's upper end, casts a wide net, altering the trajectory of any light that hits it. The light sails through the objective lens and on down to the eyepiece, which steers the photons into their final resting place, the inside surface of your eye. Final is an overstatement. Nothing is really final for energy, for light. The first law of thermodynamics is very clear on this point. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. It only changes form. The double-double is about 162 light-years away from Earth. Here's what that means. 162 years before that spring night at the observatory, perhaps two months after the birth of Thomas Edison in 1847, light shot out from the fiery surfaces of all four stars in the system. The Dearborn Observatory didn't even exist yet. For the next 162 years, some of that light spent every moment of every day zipping through space at 670 million miles per hour on a collision course with the Earth's orbit. Earth spun on its axis and circled the sun. People invented cars and swing dancing and pogo sticks and the internet. And the light never even slowed down until it flew through the Earth's atmosphere over Evanston, Illinois, and a Northwestern physics student in a brown t-shirt snared it with a telescope and stopped it with his eye. But we've been over this. Stopped is not the right word. Transformed is more like it. The light collides with photoreceptors in the eye, and the energy from the collision sets off a chain reaction in the brain, and then, for the observer, the real fun begins. In the brain, even a rookie stargazer can appreciate this faint relic of a distant nuclear fire, a reminder that nothing is really as calm as it looks. Just down the street from the Dearborn Observatory, deep inside a network of practically identical, mostly unmarked orange brick buildings, Professor David Furster is rooting through the files on his computer, looking for an old video. The glow from the screen reflects off of his wire-framed glasses and gets lost in his thick, dark mustache. Trying to locate Furster's office in this brick labyrinth is a cinch compared with his parallel project, finding the function of a single cell in the back of the brain's tangled mess of unmarked pathways. Furster is a light catcher, too but his method is a bit less direct than the telescope's. He studies the mammalian visual cortex, the part of the brain that sees. If Furster had been in the observatory with the right equipment, he could have told us exactly what happened to the light after it collided with the retina of the awestruck student. The retina converts the light into electricity, then passes it on to the brain, with whatever information, color, intensity, motion, location, and space, the eye managed to gather. 
Oh, here it is, says Furster, pressing play on the grainy movie. The screen is gray except for a thin rectangular band of light that someone off-camera is controlling. When the light passes over the center of the screen, at just the right angle, a staticky sound pops wildly through the speakers. A hand reaches in from off-camera and marks the sweet spot with a line of black X's. The beam turns sideways and passes perpendicularly over the X's. No sound. The beam twists and turns and covers most of the surface area of the screen, but the static returns only when it passes over the cascade of X's. This, Furster explains, is footage from a series of experiments first run in the 1960s and still repeated and expanded on in labs like his. Off-camera, there is a test subject, in this case a cat, with an electrode implanted in the visual center of its brain. The electrode is finer than a human hair, so fine that it can fit inside a single neuron. What we see on the screen is what the subject was seeing, and what we hear is the sound of one neuron firing over and over again. This neuron fires whenever the subject sees a 45-degree angle in the center of its visual field. There are many other clips from the same set of experiments. The researchers found that some neurons fire only when there is no light in a specific area or when the light moves in a particular way. Others fired only when shown certain shapes or patterns. The retina makes a picture, basically, an electronically encoded copy of the world, Furster says, careful to add that the brain is not a computer. A computer just crutches numbers, zeros and ones. It plugs in the variable and out pops the answer, the same every time. Consider, he says, the vast difference in raw data between a hand held palm out toward the eyes and the same hand rotated so that the palm faces the viewer's left. The latter image would confound a computer, but a human knows instantly that it's a hand, which direction it's facing, and roughly how far away it is. The way neurons work is different from the way chips work, he says, but some parts of the brain fit the analogy more closely than others. The visual cortex is one of the few places where we actually know what the algorithm is. It's one of the few places where we can actually go in and see how the computation works. The little man who sits just behind your eyes, furiously pushing buttons and shouting orders into a headset, has always been a bad metaphor. The cells in the visual cortex are more like a fleet of little men, each with specific orders. This one fires when a light goes out. This one fires when it sees vertical lines. Or think of the neurons like sports fans packed in a stadium. Everyone is holding a single square of paper, with broad strokes that are practically meaningless on their own. But taken together, they form a detailed likeness of the home team's mascot. Except, instead of a flat, static image, your neurons produce a full three-dimensional model, recognizable in part or in full, rotated at any angle. That, Furster observes, is an extraordinarily difficult set of computations. Furster says there is some debate in the neurology community on the nature of the visual system. One school of thought suggests that the visual cortex actively shapes our internal models of reality, that it is wired to make a few basic assumptions about space and light, distance and perspective, and that these assumptions limit the ways we can interpret visual input. This school points to common optical illusions as evidence. Even when we know two lines are parallel, other lines on the page can lead us to believe they bow out in the center. Even when we know two people are the same height, one wearing vertical stripes looks taller. The other school holds that the visual cortex is more neutral observer than pundit, more computer than programmer. Furster summarizes. You put in some signal, and what comes out is a simple transformation of those inputs, he says. Although much of his research supports the passive observer school, Furster says he finds it less philosophically pleasing than the other. If he had a choice, if he were not bound by profession and temperament to the facts, he might rather the brain had its own agenda, its own spin to impose on reality. Drunk on distant constellations and bathed in red light, our rookie stargazer may disagree. As long as someone like her can look skyward and funnel energy thousands of years older than the Great Pyramid directly into her brain, the simple reflexive nod to reality is enough. 
there is room to hope that maybe human agency, like light, does not really vanish when it collides with forces more substantial than itself. Maybe it changes course. Maybe it changes form. Maybe it's still out there in the dark, waiting for some curious person to reel it back in. Aubrey Henretti lives in Chicago. She writes about language and critical thinking at wordmonster.org. Thank you for listening to Oddments, a production from the College of Curiosity. Contact us with any corrections or questions at collegeofcuriosity.com. And remember, if you're ever searching for a word and can't remember what it is, what you're actually experiencing is... it's called, um... Ayas. Lethologica. Remember that the next time you can't remember a word. This episode was written by Jeff Wagg, Jaris Durnett, and Aubrey Henretti. Music by Fisher Wagg, Simon Wagg, and William Zeitler on the Glass Harmonica.